how not to define demagoguery. It's this person that's not an oligarch who inflames the opinions and the the mass the masses of the uh, landed but very poor still citizenry against the oligarchs somehow. Right? It's kind of this uh, the rebellion of the oppressed and the it's it's a very dangerous thing to do that. The oligarchs or the ones who've come from the good families are inevitably better. Uh, and so there's this conflation of populism and demagoguery, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, it's a pl- it feels like it's like appealing to the demos, um, and that yeah. and that and same with the populist, the populist of, of, of appealing to the populace, populace. Mm-hmm. The sense that we're speaking for the for the ones without a voice, and we're their person, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that can be conflated with demagoguery that you, you can have that uh, uh, combination very often happens, but it doesn't have to. Um, because as you show, uh, I think there's a very good, good case that uh, Warren, the one who became chief justice, um, you know, uh, didn't say something that was obviously false when he was arguing for the Japanese internment uh, wasn't, objectively a bad person based on his other actions in his life uh, wasn't appealing necessarily to populist notions uh, and uh, wasn't uh, consciously being manipulative uh, yeah. if anything he was manipulated himself by the by the war situation that that he was in right? and so uh, the way you define it what I think is very interesting is demagoguery's discourse that promises stability, certainty, and escape from the responsibilities of rhetoric by framing public policy in terms of the degree to which the means and the means by which the outgroup should be scapegoated for the current problems of the in-group. Um, and public disagreements are really just about group identity, who belongs in the group and who does not, who's a rhino and who's a true conservative. Yeah. Uh, uh, the need... Uh, the terrible things that the art group are doing to us, and the the uh, with their very presence, and what level of punishment uh, to enact against them for everything from uh, restricting them their rights to exterminating them, uh, and that becomes the the modus operandi in in the de- demagogic uh, rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it's a, the the core of it is a kind of us versus them. Uh, and there can be multiple of thems, uh, but there's the uh, the dividing of society into a, a weird this group and this is us, and that's them. And as long as we can beat, overcome, uh, or uh, subdue them, we'll be all right. Everything else yeah. will will disappear. Yeah, that, that, that they're the cause of all of our problems, and so um, fighting them will solve all our problems. And, it, and the paradox of demagoguery, of course, is you can't actually solve it. I mean, if you did, you wouldn't have them and around right. as a unifying force, right? And right. so, yeah. I mean, And that's why it's useful to have a kind of hob, hobgoblin like liberals, um, because you can then anyone who's not us, you can just throw them there in that category. No true Scotsman, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But again, there's... There are times for this, right? I, I'm very glad that the Nazis are not with us anymore as far as the Nazi Germany. Uh, I'm glad it's yeah. not a global political power. Uh, I'm glad that was done away with as much as could be done in a in a, in a a uh, power struggle. Um, that there is a certain time when you say, when you say that this is appropriate to say we are in a fight for national survival and for survival of our civilization, the rhetoric of of Churchill, right? So if we can do this, then all of Europe may be free to go into sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the world will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. I mean, this is very us versus them, right? Uh, very no. us. Uh, well, and okay. Explain that. Yeah. Sorry. Explain yeah, that. yeah. I was really surprised. Uh, when I first started working on this, I just assumed that y- for war, you'd have to have demagoguery, that you couldn't possibly, so that Churchill and FDR must have engaged in demagoguery, but they actually didn't. Okay. Um, and I was really surprised by that. Um, so it's it's very motivating. But for one thing, they didn't say anyone who isn't fully on board with what I'm doing right now is a Nazi. Okay. So the... Uh, it's not either you're with us or against us. Yeah. Switzerland are not Nazis. Right. Because they're just because they're, or Sweden, just because they're neutral. 
Yeah. So, okay. mm-hmm. um, and, and also, you know, the, the, and so then the willingness to work with different people, including like the USSR, right. You know, to, um, but then um, Churchill and FDR didn't scapegoat, right. They, they condemned the Nazis for things Nazis were really doing. Right. Um, and, um, or the Japanese, you know, and so they, that it was actually, so there wasn't, there wasn't really scapegoating um, going on. And also, um, they admitted that the, the, what policy we were going to adopt was, was complicated and was hard to figure out. Mm. And there was, we, we could argue about, about these policies. And so there might be people with a shared goal of exterminating Nazism, which is a perfectly fine goal as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> um, but who, who genuinely disagreed in goodwill and good faith about this strategy versus that strategy. Mm. Um, so that that's, so there's, there was still tons of policy argumentation going on. And so um, I, I would say then it's, it is still to a certain extent, it is an us versus them uh, as far as there's Germany and the Axis powers versus the rest of versus the free world uh, we could talk about, or anyone who wants to ally with us really, not just the free world, uh, USSR. And right. so. um, but that's the yeah, but the, there are all these people who are neither. Yeah, right. And uh, so there, there, but there, there is a kind of uh, not. It's it, it is there is an us versus them going on. There's a there's a existential struggle, uh, but the whole world isn't simplified into that. Yeah. that that's what and you're there, saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there and you know there are times that people face existential threat. You know the what. Um, what I always say to my students is if a fi- you know if, if there was a fire, we wouldn't be like, okay, can we make a motion? Is there a second on that motion? Right. Um, what are our various options here? You know, right. I mean, there, there are times that you're going to punch somebody. Um, and, and, um, uh, and so, yeah, fighting Nazis was a great idea. Mm. Um, but they're, they're really, I mean, so also what I'll say is that for me, demagoguery is a kind of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not the same. Um, and so propaganda, you know, they, there was a lot of, of war propaganda but um, I did come across a really weird thing. I, I wish I'd um, saved it. It was, you know, out of storage or something at my university. And it was something from 1944, maybe, I think it was 1944, but um, about uh, Himmler. Mm. And it was this little pamphlet that apparently was given out to, you know, people and troops about how evil Himmler was. And it was going on about his having hands like spiders and all this. And it was really demagogic about, about Himmler. And the bizarre thing is you didn't have to be demagogic about Himmler. You could describe him perfectly accurately. Right. He was bad <laughs> enough. <laughs> it's like, why did they do this? I mean, it's why like the, the, the Disney, uh, the Disney uh, Bugs Bunny and the Japs, right? The Japanese. <laughs> yeah. So, like it was so str- it was very very strange, but also it was just uh, you know it, it seemed to me unnecessary to to engage in that kind of demagoguery about Hitler about Himmler mm. because again just just describe totally... it the way it is and that'll be enough exactly kind of thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, you're done. but but you do to talk about uh, the Japanese internment being a, right. an example of demagoguery and that did happen uh, during that time so whether it not necessarily the acts of Churchill and, and FDR but during that time, it was especially a rife, rife time for demagog- demagogues to arise, you could say. Yeah, I mean, there, there was demagoguery. I mean, that was uh, definitely in, in regard to um, the mass imprisonment of Japanese Americans. Um, also, I think uh, it was interesting that, that FDR, when FDR wanted to integrate troops, there mm-hmm. was demagoguery about that. Um, they put out a pamphlet. Um, God, I think, it was, I think it was Ruth Benedict who wrote it about how Nazism was bad and it was um, objected to on the Senate floor by Southerners because it, it basically, it said that, you know, this, exactly the same science that was behind Nazism, science with scare quotes, was behind segregation. Right. And so they were like, oh, wait a second, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, it's there, you're right. I mean, that's a better way to put it. There was lots of demagoguery, but, it, but um, we can respond to existential threat without demagoguery. It's not always necessary. Um, and, and if it is in small amounts, as, you know, as I say, I don't think it's necessarily all that harmful. Um, but it's, I, I mentioned there's weird demagoguery on YouTube about music, for instance. <laughs> so 
I really have to learn not to read YouTube comments. <laughs> but, uh, and I think when sport, you get a lot of demagoguery about, you know, people in, who love some other team are just completely evil. Mm -hmm. But until it leads to riots, um, you know, if they, once it gets widespread enough that there's actual violence happening. Well, kind of like the blue versus green groups in the old Byzantium, right? <laughs> the, yeah. Where you actually had like whole civil wars over, over sports teams. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, so there, there, there is. Um, so the case study that you bring here is uh, War, uh, Earl Warren, who became mm -hmm. the Supreme Court Justice later, uh, who was arguing in favor of Japanese internment, and was using all these techniques that you talk about, like the the uh, that he was arguing that essentially, as long as we do away with the Japanese and put them in these camps, we are will be safe from the Japanese threat. He made arguments that sabotage from Japanese Americans was crucial to the victory, their victory at Pearl Harbor. It wasn't. Uh, yeah. He uh, made claims that uh, since we haven't had any large-scale scale Japanese sabotage in California, that's proof that it's just about to happen, <laughs> rather than that they actually don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. He uh, looked at where these Japanese Americans were living and they were living close to power stations. They were living close to, to, uh, to uh, central uh, transport locations. All these places we could do sabotage. Um, and, of course, most people live close to these things because right. there are amenities that you need uh, in modern society. Uh, and yeah. all people want to live in central locations. But he sees it as something sinister and threat threatening. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me a lot about the days, the the years after nine eleven, where yeah. someone having a laptop on a, a a flight was seen as something inherently threatening. Uh, yeah. You should keep your eyes up for this. You know, the, all these threat alerts. Keep your eyes open for people to do this. People, you know, the again, uh, there's the th the threat perception here. I think is is uh, I don't know if it's essential, but it's definitely the threat perception definitely makes demagoguery much more appealing, uh, much yeah. easier to accept. If, and if powerful. You, yeah. If you have the ex ex experience of there's a threat there that's that's very present. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, I think it was interesting how that was also repeated in a very influential document for the before the 2016 election, the Flight 93 election. You ever read uh -huh. that one? Have you, do, mm -hmm. you, do you ever read it? Uh, no. They say in conservative circles, it's probably the most persuasive document to make people that didn't like Trump but were conservatives still to vote for him. Uh, it was written by Michael Anton, but at the time it was written by someone who uh, gave with a made-up name uh, as an anonymous author. But it went throughout throughout tons of message boards, essentially saying that this is our last chance, and if Hillary Clinton. Or the liberals, if they take the country, we'll never get it back. And so mm -hmm. this is the Flight 93 election, where we're storming oh, wow. the cockpit, cop, cockpit with whatever we have, and the flight and the the flight may crash, whatever it is. But this this is our last and only and best chance is to vote for Trump. And otherwise, there's we essentially we've lost. Uh, there's okay. there's nothing left. There's nothing worth living for anymore. And so anything goes. In right. this situation, anything goes. Sure, we'll take an adulterer. Uh, we'll take someone who's, you know, who's uh, illiterate about the Bible. Um, as whoever can win, we will look for in that situation. Yeah, and and um, I mean, it's what Agamemnon calls a state of exception, right? And so you, the the party of law and order, will violate law, uh, all the laws, um, and and because the situation is is so desperate. So you're right. I mean, I think that's. Um, that's an important aspect of demagoguery that I don't think I emphasized enough in that, in that book is, is the existential threat part of it is um, that we're, you know, we're up against a wall and this, this is, this is it and we're going to die. And, and so then all, all of these little things are taken as signs of what's about to happen. And I, I have come to believe that it's that for some people there, you have evidence and, what makes something evidence is if it's disproven, you'd be like, oh, okay, then, then my, my claim is wobbly and I need to, you know, think about that um, versus signs. And so it doesn't, if, 
99 out of 100 Muslims are perfectly nice people, but there's one who isn't. That one person is the sign. If you're looking at evidence, the 99 matter. If you're looking for signs, they don't. And, um, and so for, for a lot of people, something like uh, people saying happy holidays is a sign. <laughs> the fact that it's trivial and it doesn't matter and people have said happy holidays for years, um, that's, that's it's, it's a war on Christmas, yeah. it, but it, but it's a sign of a war on Christmas. Right. And so, and that's one of the signs that everything about us, they're, they're absolutely trying to destroy. So I, what I couldn't get people to understand, you know, kept trying to is, is, um, you know, we legalized divorce a long time ago in the United States, but as a church, you don't have to marry somebody who's divorced. No church is forced to marry people who are divorced. Um, you don't have to um, uh, call a pastor who's divorced. You don't have, I mean, you know, you can still prohibit divorce in your church. And so if we allow gay marriage, that doesn't mean that there's going to be gay marriage in your church if you don't want it. Mm. And, and people could not understand that um, because they, they'd heard so much about Christians are going to be launched into camps um, you know, uh, it's going to be illegal to be Christian and probably not, you know, it's, it's not like we have no discrimination in businesses against African-Americans, despite the fact that that's been, um, unconstitutional and, and illegal for a long, long time. So it, that, that sort of fear mongering was really weird. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, it, but I think that I think that nut picking part is um, is really difficult. But it's also much more interesting, right? Because if you have a, a television program and you invite somebody on who's going to say, "Okay, here's the history," you know, constitutional lawyer is going to say, "Here's the history of this sort of stuff, and here's how it works out, and here are the distinctions." People are going to change the channel, and they're going to, you know, watch some Celebrity Apprentice or something. Um, but if you have someone who's going to come on and say, "I want everyone shot." who everyone's got to get gay married. Right. Um, that then people will watch it. So it's the, uh, again, it's the chicken and the egg, right? Is this like, uh, <laughs> so you talked a little bit about the, that uh, demagoguery is a bit like, um, it is not a disease or an infection, but it's a bit more like algae in a pond. Yeah. Uh, when people can talk about, you know, ponds being algae infested or stuff like that, but it's not, that's not what, what how it happens, but really it, it's, uh, it's talking about that, um, there's always some of it, but that there becomes kind of an over prevalence of something. It can become saturated with it. Is, is that correct? That's yeah. uh, and so what talks about that. That's what demagoguery can do: create an environment of more and more demagoguery. Uh, then, for people can be competing for media markets, consumers, voters, and so on. Demagoguery is likely to be the more effective rhetorical strategy. And more rhetors will choose it, and rhetors have to out demagogue each other to get attention. Buyers, voters, etc. Right? Um, yeah. You know, what that was kind of one of the selling points of Trump was that he would go further than anyone else. Yep. <laughs> he would out demagogue the demagogues, right? He would. Yeah. He would uh, out uh, immigrant policy, Scott Walker. Uh, he would, uh, you know, the um, the amount of uh, just. Mm. He, he latched onto that very quickly. I think he has this kind of like conman's uh, uh, sensitivity to what the audience wants, and so he would go yeah. further than anyone else would go because they would they other ones have to actually write policy, and understood that you can't just take the oil, uh, you can't <laughs> just build the wall and make Mexico pay for it. Yeah. Uh, you know those those kind of things that um, it's uh, he would just say like well they wanted me to go further and the, he could sense the audience's uh, sense for what, what he, what they wanted and yeah. just give it to them uh, irrespective of policy uh, and precedent and, it, and uh, you know, practicality. <laughs> yeah. And he knew that he had a media platform that would back him on that, no matter what he said. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I was listening to Maggie Haberman. I don't know if she has, has her name, but anyway, on mm -hmm. yeah, Maggie about, Haberman, yeah. Yeah. Uh, covering him. And, and she said that, you know, when she was covering someone like Rick Perry, he'd lie. Um, politicians lie. And, um, but if he got corrected, so he'd say, you know, something cost a million dollars. And if he got corrected, he, next time he gave the speech, he'd say the correct number. 
Right. So if he got called out on a lie, he'd correct it, whereas Trump never did. You know, Trump just kept repeating the lies. Oh, if anything, he uh, doubled down because he didn't at yeah. first say that Mexico was going to pay for it. That was an embellishment that came later. Yeah. And so, as you know, as long as he stuck to it, um, then then what he got, you know, that's that's the big lie. Right. And and what he got from that was two things. He, he got that he looked determined and decisive. So people who recognized it as a lie still liked him for the lie, for telling the lie and sticking to it, because that they, they're the kind of people who think that stick to perseverance is all that you really need. And make the, and then make the libs people, cry. Make the libs cry. Yeah. And then the other people them. would be like William Gilmore Sims is saying, it's got to be true because it keeps getting repeated all over the place. So he, um, you know, he, so he just kept saying those sorts of things. Um, and then he could have a, a policy agenda that had nothing to do with whatever it was that he was saying and, and, and people didn't care. Um, so it was, it, it's, it, it is what a con artist does when, um, when you get, when con artists get caught out in a lie, they'll, they, they, they stick with it uh, because that's so against our normal perception of how humans behave that we start to doubt ourselves and think, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Because everyone's saying it and because it's repeated and repeated and repeated, right? Again and again and again. Yeah. And, and so it, I, I, I just, I, I, yeah, sorry. I, I was going to say, um, you know, the ash experiment? Uh, no. Huh. Oh, yes. About oh. the, about uh, where you put someone in a room and everyone else in the room has been, told to give the wrong answer as far as when yeah. when they see something they give the wrong answer and they all agree on the wrong answer and first the person will oppose but after a while they will yeah. agree with the others just to fit in yeah well and and that if the first three people to say you know if they're if there are two lines on the board and one is shorter than the other and that if the first three people say that they're the same length the fourth person who's you know who is actually the subject of the experiment might very well say, yeah, they're the same length. I, I feel sometimes like that Trump and Fox News is like an ash experiment on the nation. Yeah, it's like uh, Trump is uh, essentially he says something that's a lie and he dares people to call mm -hmm. him out on it. And if they do, then they'll get slaughtered. Um, yeah. And so it's also a way of kind of keeping people in line. Uh, the kind of cultish behavior, almost like the the more outrageous the lie, the, the more <laughs> the the, yeah. the more tests the the of purity and loyalty exactly yeah um and social psychologists call it a blue lie mm. so you know a, a, a blue lie is a is a lie that is loyal to the group and and so to go back to sports this is why your your initial thing was so useful um saying we're gonna win the championship this year oh we're gonna win everybody knows you're not but but that you're willing to say something that is so obviously untrue shows you're really passionate about the group Mm. And so the fact that it's irrational. And anyone who, who at that point is talking against your, your, you're killing our motivation here. You're, you're talking against the team. You're, you're going against the team. Yeah. Right. And so it becomes yeah. a kind of more a sense of power and will rather than actual knowledge and facts. Yep. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of will, uh, there's a very strange moment in um, uh, table talk with Hitler or Hitler's table talks. I think it's called where he he's he's talking about the fact that um he had to flip multiple times on the soviet union mm. and you know they're they're Riffing the cause of it. then yeah mm. yeah and you know and and there's this creepy moment where he says i couldn't have done that if i didn't have the media that i did that would just completely flip and that's what caused the people to flip is mm. that the media was was univocal um at that moment and and i you know that's the way i, I something like 40%, maybe, maybe slightly higher than that, people believe that Fox News is the most reliable media source. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Americans do. So, you know, you've, you, he, so Trump had, and I think still has, this media source <clears throat> that will flip instantly. You know, McCain is good, McCain's bad, McCain's good, McCain's bad. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's, and, and people, believe that it is reliable in terms of reliably supporting the Republicans. I'm taking a lot of your time here now, but uh, the, uh, uh, what, I was just looking at this one here. I'm thinking about, 
what came first, right? The chicken or the egg? What comes first, the demagogues or the demagogic mm. culture? And I guess the part of that you're saying here is that they both happen at the same time, or, or not happen at the same time, but the one kind of reinforces the other. Um, that um, say you have, for example, a Limbaugh that start was a sports commentator first, right? Originally. Mm. Um, and then he goes on into politics and commentates on that as he did sports, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Um, so again, the sports is <laughs> the politics yeah. of sports is a is perhaps a apt metaphor here, right? Um, and then it and starts to talk about politics as in this was a gain for us and this was a gain for them. Here we won, mm-hmm. here we lost, and so on, right? Um, and you have fall, him being very successful to that, attracting an enormous audience, uh, and then a lot of kind of mini limbaughs following afterwards. So mm-hmm. you have the Hannity, right. you have Levin, you have you know all these other ones. Um, on talk radio and dominating the radio space uh, because okay. I listened to you know for in- interest for a while as well as in America it's it's very entertaining uh, mm-hmm. it uh, and you have like the tallies and oh yesterday this happened and that's a win for our side and this was a win for their side and you know and you have like the the whipping up of kind of and it's going closer and and we're going to win this and we're going to win this and oh we didn't win this that's because yeah. they were traitors and they didn't they let us down and. <laughs> But then, yeah. and then you have obviously Fox News coming in. That was something that was a model already, I think, from Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this has already been, always been there, but it kind of coalesces uh, in a certain way. Um, but you also have MSNBC kind of trying to counter program that for the left, right? So the kind of, um, and the growth now of more and more politicians, um, Newt Gingrich. Probably one of the fir- one of the first one of them's uh, them uh, sounding like a talk radio host rather than a politician, right? Uh, mm. A little bit more polished, but uh, increasingly Jim Jordan, others they they sound like talk radio hosts. They don't sound like politicians anymore. Louis Gohmert is a talk radio host. <laughs> yeah. Mike Mike Pence was a talk radio host. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but you you have this um, expectation of that's what a politician sounds like, or that's what someone who fights for our side should sound like. Um, and this is what works in politics. Um, and the algae <laughs> takes over the, yeah. takes over the pond. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then the, you have the undercurrent of the populace that seems to be wanting these things too. Um, you had already in 2008, McCain, a voter came up to him and said, Look, I think Obama. I think Barack Obama. He's a Muslim. I think he's a, I think he's a communist. I think he's a, you know. And McCain stops him, yeah, right? and says like, no, no, he's a good man, um, yeah. good Christian, whom I have policy disagreement with, and tries to get it back to policy. Yeah, but they want to make it about identity. Um, yeah. and the same thing was with Mitt Romney. I followed his campaign very closely, um, and the for the convention, the Republican convention, a lot of people were pushing for. Again, go attack Obama. Uh, and he said, no, we're going to say that he's been inept on economic policy um, and we're not going to attack him personally. Right? That that was a choice, again, that the leadership made, whereas, Obama, whereas Trump was like, yeah, whatever will make me win, right? And mm-hmm. what will make me win and what the people want and what will get them fired up is identity. They'll go on like essentially all these veiled, you know, he's a black person and uh, yeah. sometimes very clearly, not just even veiled, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Get this Negro out of the White House. Um, yeah. The White House, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, get this black person out. Uh, Hillary, uh, you know, she's uh, um, enabled all the same things uh, and a lot of derogatory stereotypes about her being a woman and so on. Um, and so... Chicken or the egg, right? Um, do they find a market because the people are already demagogic? Do we already have a demagogic culture? Uh, or, and do they just exploit a market, a business opportunity that's already there? Uh, or, and to what extent do they help further it themselves? So how, to what extent do they create it? I think that's a great question. And I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I think it's interesting. I mentioned earlier that you often have um, media, a media change of some kind or another. So in the early 19th century, uh, mails became very cheap and and printing became much cheaper. And so so you had the opportunity for this explosion of different newspapers that people could have. Mm -hmm. But 
Um, and, and, and for then, a while, it's the Wild West kind of thing. Yeah, well, and then also, I mean, people ignore this, especially people who want to say that demagoguery and democracy have to go together. But, but um, Hobbes translated Thucydides because he was so concerned about the demagoguery that was that went on for the English Civil Wars, mm. um, and that and that I think was the point of printing, right? That there was a, um, I don't know what would have caused it in say the you know Athens or something. But so sometimes I wonder about whether it's it's that you you have this these conditions under which people can go to like-minded places and get their information from that. And then those like-minded places learn that they're going to get more power by um, essentially setting fire to themselves. I mean, demagoguery is ultimately incredibly destructive of the community of its own community. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the, um, so, so I, I ended up deciding that I think you can't, probably can't really have institutional solutions to it. I don't know what those institutional solutions would be that wouldn't involve serious problems of, of um, Censorship. You know, free speech and constitutionality and everything. Mm. You know, nothing Warren said um, would fit into to incitement to riot or, or you know, so what are we going to do? And, and that's where I think that we've ended up, that where I've ended up, um, thinking that it's got to be about the public, that the public just has to stop buying this stuff mm. um, and make it not profitable. It's, it's out there because it's profitable and if people stop buying it and stop purchasing it. So it's, I think as, as I say in the book, we get the politicians we deserve. Mm. Um, and, and you know, we need to, we need to stop buying demagoguery uh, and that's that's ultimately what's what's really going to change it. You um, you mentioned you know before we started this about about you know sort of the origins of the book and and I I said it, it really started with my interest started with the looking at the pro slavery rhetoric and being very frightened about um, the media situation and where we were. And um, then in the summer of of 2016, the press actually contacted me and said that they were thinking about doing this little book. And we, I tried to write a version that would come out before the election, but it was really hard for me to unlearn academic writing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, and the editor was great. He was really, really good at helping me, but it's, um, that was, that was really, really tough. But, um, it, you know, other people have been kind of talking about that, um, about this issue about Trump's demagoguery. And, um, but I, I don't want us to focus too much on Trump, which is why he's not mentioned in the book, mm-hmm. because then we can be demagogic about him exactly. and think that if we get rid of him, we've solved the problem and we haven't. Um, and, um, you know, the, the horse race way of thinking about politics, that goes back to the 70s, mm. um, if, if not earlier than that. Joe Pine was a guy in the 60s and 70s in California um, who had his TV show. Gene Scott had a TV show. Who was He was very demagogic. So you had these people, they would just be local. Um, mm. You know, and um, Charles Coughlin, I think, was, was national. Um, but I, Huey Long, you know, was mostly regional. So I, I don't know exactly what the conditions are that that cause demago- a, a particular demagogue at a particular moment to rise. Mm. Um, but certain, as I mentioned before, certainly Trump benefited a lot by Celebrity Apprentice. Um, and um, But then like this woman, Green, I think that's her name. Um, yeah, Marjorie Green, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she, she benefited um, from a Republican party that wasn't, that was itself shameless. Yeah. QAnon, yeah. yeah that, that wasn't willing to say, where, I mean, they backed her, they yeah. backed her yep. against you know, the other guy. So, um, yeah. And, and that's where I guess we talk about that uh, demagoguery is powerfully reduced when it stops getting people elected. And that usually mm-hmm. happens because of in-group policing. Right. And, you know, the example of McCarthyism, um, not ending, but you know, there was "Have you no decency?" at long last, sir. Have you no decency? Right. Uh, yeah. The uh, repudiation of him by the Senate essentially and ended his career. It didn't end anti-communism, but it ended the specific vicious form of McCarthyism of anti-communism. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, you know, the uh, Birchers being thrown out. I mean, there they really were offering a conspiracy theory that was us versus them, and it fitted them, the liberals, the communists, Martin Luther King, um, essentially every, every, anyone arguing for change in America as a part of a worldwide conspiracy to overthrow the, uh, the foundations of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now the Birches are running the house. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Literally the house, the house, the house of representatives. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I, I just, uh, there are some, and anyone who tries this in-group policing, even McConnell uh, recently, uh, they are faced with the stark reality that their own constituents will punish them mm-hmm. for speaking truth, will punish them for um, going against their president or former president now. Yeah. Uh, will punish them for, you know, doing their basic civic duty of of telling the truth, enforcing the law, um, you know, or enforcing standards, norms that have been the basis of our democratic society. And one of them says, I don't appreciate your you kneecapping our forces when we're trying to defend us, ourselves against the hellish future of uh, socialism. Uh, yeah, you know, and uh, normally I would agree with you, but you know, David French was talking about why these uh, lawsuits and the uh, stop the steal thing was bunk. Um, great source, by the way, of someone who's stood up for principle despite it harming a lot of his own policy causes. Um, but uh, saying you're kneecapping us, and normally I would ex- ex- agree that we should have these things, but we can't now. We need to temporarily suspend all norms and laws and rules in yeah. order to survive, in order to fight this battle to survive because we will never get our country back otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, uh, you know, we, we had to destroy the village to save it. Yeah. I yeah. keep thinking about that. And and how's that village now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just... Uh, I'm just I don't see at the moment, current moment, with like where that internal policing is going to come from um, within the GOP. It, yeah, I mean, what it, um, I mean, what it has to come from is from people who put their country above their career. Right, and so you have the Romneys and the Flakes, but they get replaced at the next primary. <laughs> uh, and so yeah. there, there has to be some leadership, but at some point there has to be kind of an awakening or kind of like a realization of what what really was going on here, like a, a reckoning yeah. of the, um, of, of the crimes. I don't know if the Senate debate, uh, Senate, uh, impeachment trial can be that if they call, you know, witnesses or so on. But, um, again, it's going to be covered and filtered down through partisan media. Then right. how many people are actually going to see this? Will there be a enough to get a shift? Um, because, um, because the, the other place that, that it will inevitably go to otherwise is civil war. Uh, it, it yeah, almost I know. seems like what yeah, I've been, yeah I've been worried about that for a while. Yeah, um, yeah I think though I, I do think that if if people would die for their country, they should sacrifice their career for it. You know, I I think that that um, I, I I think that's what really has to happen is is enough Republicans. Yeah, that's just, quote, that's quoting Adam Kinzinger, by the way. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, the Rep- Republican rep- representative Adam Kinzinger, who was saying like our soldiers, if they're willing to die for the country, our representatives should be willing to lose their jobs for it. Yeah, um, you know, it just it just seems to me very clear. But but I think also what um, what has to happen is I keep meeting people who you know they're they're not wild about the kind of extremism of Republican Party, but they they feel like they have to vote for for tax breaks or for this or that. And I think trying to get them to understand what they're really supporting mm-hmm. um, is tremendously important and, and that they don't understand what neoliberalism is. They don't understand that Obama and Clinton and I think Biden too are third way neoliberals. Um, it, it, you know, trying to get them to understand all that stuff, trying to get them to, um, I, I, I feel like that's a kind of what I think of as like California Republicans um, that the, the compromise that they're making is a terrible, terrible compromise. Mm. And it's, you know, and it's really going to hurt them. And the, the, you, you can't, if you set fire to your building, to your house, um, in order to chase the other occupant out, and literally you don't right. have a house at the end. 
yeah, you don't have a capital. It's been broken down. Yeah, you know, and so if if they abandoned, I mean, when people abandoned democracy in the times that, you know, you and I talked about, say, Weimar, Germany, or or these other times, they abandoned democracy because they hated the other side so much and they were so afraid of something. And they didn't just get that group out and then go back to democracy. Mm. Yeah, like the, the temporarily and, suspending never becomes temporary, right? It's not temporary. It can't be temporary. You know, it's like temporary setting fire to your house and burning it down. It's mm. gone now. That wasn't temporary, you know. Um, so I think that's that's what people really do need to understand. And um, and I think it's really hard to get them to see that they're making Vladimir's choice. Mm. Cut your nose to spite your face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, perhaps they're seeing the beginning of it, you know, with the election. There was a considerable faction of people that voted down ballot for Republicans, uh, but yeah. did not vote for Trump. And that means they were Republicans, um, but who said that enough was enough as far as the president went, that uh, yeah. one, bridge, so, one bridge too far. Yeah. And so now it'll be, you know, what are they going to do with the, with the wannabe Trumps? And that's why I think the people like Green are so tremendously important is that the Republican Party needs to say this is not acceptable. You guys can form your own party if you want. Um, but it's, and, you know, here's my crank theory. Um, I think it's really interesting. I'm not, it's not, I'm not the only one who's pointed this out, but, but, you know, the democratic party did this for years um, with segregationists and made all these kind of sold its soul for, to, to get these policy successes. Mm -hmm. Um, They, and, and finally at a certain, at a certain point, LBJ said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And he thought, he thought we would lose the styles for a generation um, what he didn't predict is the Republicans would pick it up with a Southern strategy. Mm. And, um, and so it's, it's interesting that it's often, you know, a lot of the same regions that were so much trouble in terms of segregation are now so much trouble in terms of, of these kinds of issues. And I think, yeah, like, as you said, with the John Birch society, with the Republicans getting rid of the John Birch society, that's, that's what really needs to happen. But um, I think the, the institutional stuff that could happen that would help would be things like a constitutional amendment, because apparently that's what's going to take to get rid of dark money in campaigning um, uh, and to, to get in place limitations on campaign donations. Um, and, and I think just a lot of other reforms about campaigning we could, we could really do that would, that would somewhat help. I mean, I'm just thinking about the, you know, in Maine and Alaska now, they have uh, ranked choice vote voting. Um, mm-hmm. And so because of that, people in Murkowski's camp say that she's not dependent anymore on the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes her much freer to kind of vote for Alaska as a whole rather than just for her primary, uh, Alaska primary, primary voters. And she's already been, you know, she was, an, she was a write-in candidate and was able to defeat the... Uh, Tea Party politician that way last time, but mm-hmm. the the incentives behind you know the incentives of and this is perhaps where you know two party system is a little bit enable for this in America that the incentives are in the in the to just drive out your base, uh, especially mm-hmm. in the safe seats, and if you do that, you win, um, and so you have to be as clearly showing. Again, arguing identity, not politics, really, not policies. That you just make the right signs that I am dependably conservative, Republican, whatever you want to put in there. Not liberal. <laughs> you'll be a place placeholder, right? Yeah. Uh, you you'll you'll do what we expect you to do. Um, versus, you know, uh, you can have, as you said, in the Weimar Republic, you know, uh, in the multi-party system. You can't in the same way do the negative campaigning because if one party here negatively campaigns against the other one, it makes them both look bad in Norway um, and they go to a third party instead. Because <laughs> yeah. going negative only makes both of you look bad, but it just makes the other person look a bit worse. Yeah. Um, and so political campaigning in in Norway is very different than America. Uh, you don't have the same kind of, you don't have ads in general, political ads. Um um, you have much more focus on the debates and so on. 
Uh, I'm ha- grateful for those things. But, uh, it, I mean, it does say us versus them lends itself very well to a Republican versus Democrat model. Right? Or, yeah, or um, if you've got some uh, group like Jews, you know, that, right. that can be picked on. Um, right. And so it's interesting that, that a lot of the multi-party countries, some party has picked up racism as the thing that they're going to run with, and they're Definitely. doing pretty well on that. Mm-hmm. Um Muslims, I, I, Muslims primarily nowadays, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, I, my heart was broken when uh, so many, like in Texas, the the um, the Repo- Republicans won so well because I was really hoping that things would be close enough that a lot of states would would um, do what New York did and basically prohibit um, gerrymandering. Mm. And because I think that that would make a, a big difference. What happens if you've got this, you know, if you gerrymander so that you've got a, a really safe Republican seat, then you're you're guaranteed to have primaries in which the most extreme Republican is the one who's going to win. And um, and so, you know, I think that's I, I was really hoping for redistricting. But then again, I, I sometimes hope for a unicorn that poops gold in my backyard. So. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and uh, so you talk about. And I just want to just uh, wrap, just uh, wrap it off with a few things that, you know, you talk about that what we need to do, um, some of the solutions to this is not make, um, that we need to identify uh, demagoguery and not make it so profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, and not necessarily like an outright boycott of the whole, like a whole thing, but but when, when, when people are doing this and primarily demagoguery, everyone... Not everyone, but like you say, a lot. There is some demagoguery almost anywhere um, in any mm-hmm. station, but where it's like primarily that, where it's like almost nothing else, um, right. and uh, that we essentially stop uh, rewarding bad behavior. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, yeah, and um, another one to sometimes perhaps not argue uh, with people that come with these partisan lines and these de- demagoguery. But instead, try to uh, sometimes just engage with them and uh, maybe be able to break their stereotype stereotypes for the us versus them. Um, I'm just thinking if Earl Warren just knew a few more Japanese Americans. I know, yeah. You know, yeah. like yeah. if he just had a, so if a few more friends that were Japanese American and grew up in America and said the Pledge of Allegiance and you know were living yeah. in his in his neighborhood. Um, yeah. Or, or if, if he if he even stayed for the hearings. I mean, he as far as I can tell, he came and he testified and left. Mm-hmm. And if he'd listened to the people who testified, um, I, I think it would have complicated his understanding of of who these people were. There's there was an, an exchange in there where where they um, uh, General Dewitt was in in charge of that area and was lying very clearly. In fact. To, you know, to various people. And so he lied to the congressional committee that was doing these, these things and um, was claiming that all Japanese worship the emperor as a god. And therefore, if the emperor said you have to engage in sabotage, they couldn't possibly stop. Mm-hmm. And so one of the uh, congressmen asked this Japanese man, is that, is that the case? And the guy says, I don't know, I'm Methodist. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and even just hearing that of just like, oh, right. Yeah. They aren't, you know, um, they're not monoliths. Yeah. He, you know, but he, he was gone by then. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I do want to say I picked Warren, the other person who I adore, um, John Muir at, at a, in a certain fight engaged in demagoguery too. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not just them that does it, but mm. because I admire Warren so mm. much. He did so many and good things. He did so many good things, you know, and the, and the fact that even he could fall for this, and he's just a smart man. And so that he could fall for demagoguery shows that we're, we're all prone to it. We're all susceptible. Mm-hmm. We need to protect ourselves from becoming demagogues ourselves or to, from subscribing right. to demagoguery. Um, yeah. And then you'd also talked about sometimes, but sometimes you can debate and sometimes it helps to debate, mm-hmm. uh, but then try to keep again on the on the stacy's like what are we debating right now and instead of like it becoming just like a, a blame back and forth what are we debating right now go to the go to the sources go to 
the facts and it, and perhaps also to show like, look, this is the kind of fallacy that you're using. Um, mm-hmm. This is the rhetorical fallacy that you're applying to. And if I did the same to your argument, this is what I'd say. You wouldn't accept that, would you? Right. Saying so again, trying to get them a little bit back to the fairness, um, yeah. the, the fairness principle. I'd say, um, mm-hmm. and a little bit of the self skepticism that's that's necessary. Um, and even someone who's like just as long as they're not a bot, they may start like enjoying that and actually engaging and and doing some basic work of self reflection at least. Yeah. Um, Again, as long as they're not paid to argue or being a bot or just like spewing forth <laughs> yeah, stuff, yeah. Uh, as long as you're actually talking to a real person here. Um, yeah. And then you talk about the, finally, the kind of, we need to uh, argue and support and actively promote democratic deliberation. Mm-hmm. That, uh, And I think it's a problem that we just take these things for granted, right? We just, so many people... I talked to in America or just under this illusion somehow that it just can't happen here. It's mm-hmm. impossible. Um, so many people told me if Trump loses the election, he's not going to try to hold on to power. There's not going to be riots. There's not going to be <laughs> a literal mark on March on the Capitol for as an attempted yeah. coup. Uh, I mean, there's, um, you know, take your pick, but there was just so many people that thought it can't happen here. This is not, America, this would happen in banana republics, this wouldn't happen in America. And this yeah. kind of, uh, and, you know, Gary Kasparov and other people that had seen democracy fall in Russia and other places, they were warning and warning and warning and warning. Yeah. And as Americans were, so many were just saying, no, 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 not here. That's easy. No, 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 don't worry about it. They'll be taken care of. And, you know, that that won't happen here. And we can't, so... Yeah. We can afford a little demagogue, demagogue here in this country. It won't destroy us. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, or the other one that made me pound my head on the table was, um, you know, uh, Biden and, and Trump are the same. There's no real difference between them. Right. If Biden lost, there would not have been riots. No. And, well, I mean, maybe some, you know, uh, there were some people uh, when Trump was inaugurated, there were some. Uh, protesters and there were some people that did some vandalism in DC. So I'm not saying there wouldn't be anything, but he wouldn't call for it. Um, And that's, that's a huge difference. And the, uh, um, what I like to say, so, cause uh, I, I identify myself as kind of center right politically myself. Uh, I've been very happy about some of the kind of never Trump Republicans who have stuck to to principle uh, and Mm -hmm. been a voice of, of reason and uh, good, uh, conservative analysis of why Trump is wrong <laughs> for a lot of, for a lot of, for a lot of people, um, and you know brought out the never Trump Republicans I guess to win the to be a part of the coalition that won the election. Um, what I always said was that it's kind of like a baseball team going for the state championships and the two local teams, and one of the teams figures out hey we could just take out these other players and start using the baseball bats on the other players. Yeah. And as the other players are horrified, look, and the other team says like, look, I just did a home run that no one has stopped me. No, because they're all bludgeoned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then they've won. The other ones are like looking at them and they're just like, okay, so you guys are still going to support us for the state, right? Because we're a local team and it, it's, it's our local area. So you're going to come and cheer for us, right? It's like, no, you've, you're not playing that game anymore. Yeah. This isn't yeah. this isn't the this isn't baseball anymore. This yeah. is this is the this is um, a violent crime. Uh, and in the same way, I'd say like what Trump was doing when he was threatening delegates and threatening for with riots at the Republican convention. Um, the things that he's engaging in that's not democracy anymore. You're not playing the game of democracy anymore, or even a republic anymore. Uh, what you're playing now is a game of totalitarian of authoritarianism and. Yeah. Uh, because of that, uh, a lot of them would, you know, I and a lot of others, uh, I mean, I'm Norwegian, so I can't really support, but, you know, <laughs> would support yeah. uh, Biden because he is, you know, flawed as he may be in other ways. He is um, a dem- Democrat in small d Democrat, as in he yeah. uh, believes in democratic institutions. He holds those norms to be important. Um, and so we can disagree or Republicans and him can disagree within the normal bounds of things <laughs> instead of actually yeah. 
you know, instead of tearing the house down, we're going to actually have a debate inside the house, a heated debate inside a house that's still standing and that can yeah. be maintained uh, instead yeah. of burning the house down because you don't like the other piece that the other won't don't want the other person ever to win again in that house. And I, I think ultimately history is going to judge those people very well. Um, you know, the, the never Trumpers and, um, and also the people who, who actually supported the political agenda that Trump got through, but, but still want to reject him. I, I think, I, I think history will look well on them. And um, I think sometimes that's, that's an appeal for people in politics to, to consider what they're, um, what, what's going to happen to them when they're dead, how people are going to talk about them. Um, of course, the question is the, whoever wins writes the history, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you know, who said that? Yeah. 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 So right. that exactly. I know, I know exactly. But uh, another one who also said that was Bill Barr. So, I know, I know. Yeah, and um, I mean, you know, and it's also not even true because the South lost the Civil War and they wrote the history for years. Yes, that's true. Um, but true. Um, but uh, it, it's, you know, the democracy is so fragile and it's always been fragile, but ultimately I think we have to, we have to have a certain kind of commitment to, to democracy itself. And that means a commitment to losing. Mm -hmm. um, it also means a commitment to the long term. And we're at a point where a lot of people believe only in the short term. A lot of evangelicals believe that Jesus is coming imminently. Um, so the long term doesn't matter. Um, a, a lot of people believe in a kind of capitalism where it's the short term immediate gain is, is all that matters. So we, we have a kind of culture that's not looking at the long term. I think one of the reasons that the Republicans got rid of the John Birch Society um, it, when they did is they'd been through World War II. And, and they'd seen what... It was what alive in their memories. It was alive in their memories, and they'd seen what demagoguery does. And they knew, and there's, this is a lie in America, that people want to pretend that Hitler is, was a leftist. Um, but, you know, that they knew that conservatives sold their soul to Hitler... <laughs> because they thought Hitler would get them what they wanted. And he did at first. He got them a conservative political agenda in all sorts of ways. And victory over the communists. Victory over the communists, um, you know, concordance with religious groups, uh, banned homosexuality again, banned, you know, um, sex and movies, all that sort of stuff. So they, they initially, they did pretty well. But also put... One of the uh, party members on the labor board. So there was a kind of, you know, as in, you know, that that's what they argue against that. But it was definitely the, especially the Protestants, right? If you look at mm -hmm. the, the Catholics still rejected him, uh, or at least voted for other center-right parties primarily, but the Protestants went for him in, in, in large numbers. Yeah. Um, although, I mean, the, the Catholics went for him March 23rd. That's true. Um, and and continued to support him for quite some time. And of course, you know the, the Vatican then helped helped all those Nazis get out of Germany. Um, but the so so the, the but the, but what people want to do with him is to say um, they they want to make that an identity issue, right? That that if you had a certain identity, you couldn't possibly have supported him. Right. Uh, the fact that he later turned on the churches. I talk to people all the time who say, well, they can't have supported him because he turned on them. Yeah. They didn't know he would. Yeah. I mean, they should have known he would cause he did, but, um, and that was fairly clear in, in his past that he was going to at some point, but, but they, they again want to make that an identity issue. But I think the, the people who lived through it understood it wasn't an identity issue. It, it was an issue of short-term versus long-term gains So short-term gains versus long-term protection of a, of a democratic system. And, and so that's what they chose to do. Um, yeah, yes, that's, and that's uh, the choice we need to make. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's the minor choice so that, for for example, with the filibuster and executive orders and so on like that. But um, I think we just uh, it's been a wake up call that uh, things that happen every hundred years still happen. Uh, yes, pandemics <laughs> still happen. Uh, re great recessions happen. Yeah. Um, economic crises um, and 
political upheaval and uh, uh, appeals to authoritarianism through demagoguery mm-hmm. happen. Yep. And uh, we haven't learned that much. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, it's true. Yeah, and we need to... Um, yeah, and, and, and we're, we're not going to solve the problem by exterminating some group or purifying us of, of the people. Um, I, I talk a lot about what I call the P-Funk fallacy, which is, you know, P-Funk was the, the group that had the free your, free your mind and your ass will follow. Um, and I think a lot of people believe that if you, got your, if you get your theory right or you get your, your political affiliation right, that everything follows from that. And mm. it's not. It doesn't. There's still the hard work of arguing policy. Mm-hmm. And so the... I guess the, the kind of uh, one takeaway here is that uh, demagoguery is always with us. It's mm-hmm. uh, there as a potential threat um, and something that has a strong appeal. Um, yep. And um, as the American Constitution was kind of a kind of you could say a, a as Kenneth Burke would say a parry against. Uh, tyranny, uh-huh. a universal parry against tyranny, trying to be at least. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have a parry in our democratic culture against demagoguery. Uh, and it needs to be renewed uh, every now and again because, like, like I said, the um, the John Birches were thrown out uh, but uh, because they had that memory of the demagoguery clear in, in their minds. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, <clears throat> Representative Green still sits on committees. Yep. Yeah. Well, yep. we'll see what uh, which way we take right. <laughs> as a society. It's it, it, it's uh, it's not sports. It's <laughs> right. No, sports were sports were never this. <laughs> sports Didn't sports sports were never this consequential in some ways. Right. The, um, yeah. the, but politics should be boring. It, uh, I, I, politics should be about, uh, policy and ideals. There should be a lot of, uh, emotions being able to be engaged, but you shouldn't feel existentially threatened by politics. I feel like. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I think people should be passionate about politics, but not passionate supportive point of exterminating and and um i i think a lot about hannah Arendt and her image of political participation as being consequential um and maybe passion is the wrong word but caring you know you you're going to care about it you're going to care about your country you're going to care about this mm-hmm. but Kind of, uh, kind of like uh, weeding your garden, right? You want to take care of your garden and you want to take care yeah. of your democracy. And, um, um, but not, not hating <laughs> or at least not hating individuals in front of us or something. I mean, you can hate injustice and you can hate racism, but, um, but somehow we have to live together. Mm-hmm. And I guess that also goes back to the, the principle. I think uh, at, Paul Woodruff, which also is at UT Austin, right? Or was at UT Austin? Yeah, I think yeah. it was just a wonderful book on uh, on de- on uh, democracy, on uh, yeah. Athenian democracy, a first democracy, he called it, uh, where he talked about this value of harmony. You know that mm-hmm. uh, that we need to have something in common. We need to have something that defines us beyond our partisan rancor, rancor, and mm-hmm. uh, beyond our disagreements, um, yeah. and a certain reverence also for the wonderful blessing of democracy that we have inherited for which, you know, as just, you know, going back to the mythical past, but you know, for which people died, few people fought for which people um, did a lot. And it's uh, been handed to us and we're like trust fund children. We're just like throwing it yeah. away. It feels like sometimes. Yeah. And, and um, what I like so much about his metaphor of harmony is that um, it, it's, it's better with different voices. It's better. Not everybody's singing the same melody in the same mm-hmm. way. And that's what makes it so wonderful. Um, we, to, you know, to go back to the, to the analogy of when, when we were looking for a place to live, 
one of the things I really loved about this neighborhood is that there were people cycling and walking and running and with strollers and dogs. And it was just that, that variety. And, and I really want that. And there are people who hate cyclists and there are people, you know, and there are cyclists who hate pedestrians. I mean, they're, they're, these groups don't necessarily get along, but we need to get along well enough that we can find solutions that enable all of us to use these roads Mm. without dying. Um, And, and, um, and that's, that's the best. The best world is not one that is just cyclists. The best world Mm. is one that has all these different people who are doing these things. And we got to figure out how to do that. And strong defensive pluralism. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. That's uh, I think that's a good place to end it at, don't you? This has been fun. Yeah, it's been a long conversation. I'm sorry about the taking of the long, but it's just inexhaustible topic. It is. It's uh, true. No, it's true. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.